word of God we read tonight is James chapter 1. I originally preached the sermon I'm going to preach tonight. It was a part of a series, and in that series we had been reading James 1 quite frequently, and so I read a different parallel passage, which was Matthew 4, which tells of the temptations of Christ by the devil in the wilderness. And I'm not going to read that with you tonight, but I will reference that history uh, in the sermon, so it's good just to have that in the back of your mind a little bit, that story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, but the word of God we read tonight is James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting, my brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind, and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. 
pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The text I call your attention to tonight is verses 13, 14, and 15. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is, when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, the text that we have before us tonight addresses a topic that is difficult, and it is difficult for various reasons. First of all, there is the intellectual difficulty presented by this text. How can God be sovereign over all things, including over the sinful actions of men? And not be responsible for tempting people as this text asserts. That's a difficult question intellectually. We can believe both of these things are true because the Bible clearly teaches them both. And yet, it's still challenging to reconcile it in our minds. But I think the more important difficulty is not the intellectual difficulty, but is the personal difficulty that this text faces us with. This is sensitive material. What James is doing here is giving us a sort of psychological explanation of what happens when we sin. And he doesn't give us the kind of breathing room that modern psychological explanations like to provide when they say things like, oh, it's not your fault that you sinned. It's because of this, or it's because of that, or it's because of this extenuating circumstance that happened to you. James says no to that. There's one reason why you sinned. One reason. Not because of the kind of dad you had. It's not because of the society that you were raised in. It's not because of this or that extenuating circumstance, as difficult as those may be. The reason a man sins comes from himself. It's you. It's me. As much as we know this, and as much as we have been trained in this as Reformed people, it's still difficult. It's difficult to absorb. We don't like to be guilty. We don't like it to be our fault. So much do we not like it to be our fault that we would even blame God. We would even blame God for the sin that started in here. It's a difficult text. But as difficult as the text is, it's also a profoundly beautiful passage. When I first began working on this passage, I was not expecting it to be beautiful. 
first started working on it, I, I was saying to myself, this is, a, this is a text about sin. It's a text about ugliness, human ugliness. There's not a lot of beauty there. In fact, I almost entitled the sermon, The Awful Truth About Temptation. The Awful Truth. But that's before I noticed what this passage is really all about. And though it includes a lot of instruction about us and our susceptibility to sin, that's not really what this text is about. What this text is about is God. It's about God and about who God is. It's about God in His holiness. God in His incorruptibility. God in everything that He is that makes Him eminently trustworthy and glorious and above us. This passage is about God who is not tempted with evil. Neither does He tempt any man. And that is the theme I call our attention to tonight. God not tempted with evil. First, we are going to see the wonder of this. Secondly, how this truth about who God is serves as a corrective for us when we are tempted to blame God for sins that we commit. But then we'll conclude positively by seeing how truth about God gives us great hope. God not tempted with evil, first the wonder of it, secondly the corrective, and then finally the hope. So the truth that lies at the heart of this text is that God is a God who cannot be tempted with evil. But it is important to be clear about the meaning of the word temptation, and specifically it is important to be clear about the meaning of the word temptation in this specific context, that is James 1 verses 13, 14, and 15. James has been on the topic of temptation since verse 2. There in verse 2, he was talking about temptation as a pressure that comes to us from the outside. Verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. The temptation he's talking about there is the trying of your faith. The trying of your faith that comes in the form of persecution perhaps, or sufferings that you experience in life, or troubles of life, external pressures and considerations. It's something that happens to you and reveals something about you only in your response. But here in our text, that is in verses 13, 14, and 15, this word temptation, it's the same word, but it's being narrowed. You can think of Temptation as a category, and think of it as a category with a big circle, but then it has a smaller circle inside. The big circle is that external phenomenon, that trying of faith that happens to me, a pressure in my life. Or maybe it's not a pressure in life, maybe it's something out there that is alluring to my senses, something that catches my attention, but is nevertheless contrary to God's law. But then there's the smaller circle, and the smaller circle is what goes on in my soul as those external pressures begin to work on me. Now the two 
are clearly related, which is why James uses the same word to refer to both. And yet there's also a distinction being made here. And that becomes clear in the different way James is using that word temptation here in our text, as opposed to the way he used it before. So here we're looking at that inner circle, the inner temptation. The temptation as it goes to work on my soul on the inside. And then when you look at the way James is talking about that inner temptation, it's clear that there are two phases that he draws our attention to. First, there is the drawing away. Verse 14, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. So here we have to go inside our souls And we have to think about what that experience is like when that external pressure or that external temptation starts to work on you. Maybe you're not even fully conscious of the fact that you are being worked on. But that external temptation is working on you and your desires are being inflamed. Now desires are not bad things in and of themselves. Paul speaks of good desires that he had. He had the desire to be with Christ. For example, he says in Philippians 1 verse 23, he speaks of newborn babies who desire the milk of their mothers. Desire is not a bad thing in and of itself. God created human beings to have desires. But the desire that is being worked up in you, that is drawing you away, that James is talking about here, is a desire for something sinful, a desire for something illicit and contrary to God's law. It is the desire to fornicate, to have sexual intercourse with somebody who is not your spouse, maybe a co-worker, somebody with whom you are becoming too familiar in your daily conversations. Or it's the desire to get revenge person who hurt you. Think of the way a fish is drawn away to a lure. The way a lure works, I myself am not much of a fisherman, but I've been told the way a lure works is it stirs up commotion in the water. And when that lure, as it's pulled away, stirs up commotion in the water, it awakens in the fish an impulse, maybe an impulse of anger or an impulse of hunger, and that impulse that the lure awakens in the fish draws the fish toward the lure, and he starts to move toward it. That's the first phase, the drawing away, the inflaming of the lust, so that I'm being pulled into the direction of this illicit action that I'm not supposed to do according to God's law. Then there's the second phase, and that's enticing. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Enticing is when this unconscious desire, perhaps, rises to the level of a conscious decision. I think we can all relate to that moment. haven't done anything yet. You haven't acted. The word hasn't come off your tongue. Your hands haven't moved in the direction of that thing you're not supposed to do. You can still back away and keep your hands clean. 
Your soul has already been polluted by the desire, but you could still keep your hands clean. You could still pull back from actually following through and committing the sin. But the moment of being enticed is when you say to yourself in that voice in your head, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong to look at pornographic images on my phone, but I'm going to do it. I know I shouldn't go to the bar on a Friday night. I know nothing good is going to happen there, but I'm going to do it. I know I shouldn't hold this grudge against my neighbor, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to indulge in my anger. I'm going to indulge in my sexual appetites. Enticing is when the fish clamps its mouth around that lure. And oh, that moment feels so satisfying. But of course... The experienced fishermen here know what happens next. Lust, James says, when it has conceived, brings forth sin. You thought you were in control of the situation when you gave in to your sinful passions that that temptation inflamed within you. Truth is, the hook was being set. It was being set deep within your soul. And it's a hook that has a way of pulling you back. Pulling you back again, a little bit stronger, and pulling you back again, and again, and again. And when sin is finished, it brings forth death, James says. The devil's out fishing. You don't want to be on the end of his line. You don't want your soul to be flayed open by his knife. You don't want your life to be destroyed by him, your faith made shipwrecked. But this is what James is telling us. Here, what he's telling us is that everything that we just described and saw from verse 14, especially in verse 15, all of that cannot be found in God. God will never bite that hook of temptation. God will never be drawn away by an inner compulsion to do evil and then consciously make that decision to do evil things. God is unmoved by it. He's not attracted by it in the least. So much is God unattracted by evil that everything that actually is in Him moves Him to abhor it and to hate it all the more. With His whole being and everything that He is, and He's an infinite God, He abhors and He hates evil with all the intensity of a raging inferno, which is why the Bible describes Him as a consuming fire. Fire who burns with passion, and the passion with which he burns is a passion against evil. He cannot be tempted with it. I think sometimes when we read this passage, we make a mistake in the way we think about it. We tell ourselves that because God has never experienced being drawn away and enticed, because he has never had the experience of biting that hook, 
that God doesn't really understand what temptation is. And that his hatred of sin and temptation is really just a kind of thoughtless and senseless reaction against something that God doesn't really understand. And what that really is, is an excuse. And we'll get to that later on in the second point. But it's not accurate either. God understands what temptation is, and he understands how it can be a powerful force in our lives. He knows why these things tug at us and pull at us and work on us. God is our creator. He knows us inside and out. But everything that God knows about temptation, everything that God knows about evil, only makes him hate it, and it makes him hate it even more. He knows and he understands precisely what he's rejecting and precisely what he's reacting against. He cannot be tempted with it. And I say that's a wonder. It's a wonder. It's a wonder. But it's really only a wonder from our point of view. Let me explain that. To be drawn away by our lust and enticed is so natural to us as fallen human beings that we begin to imagine that this is just the way things are. That's just what people do. We, th- we expect that our kids are going to be tempted by pornography. If we didn't expect that, we wouldn't install modems and filters on our computers and devices and in our homes to protect them from that temptation. The Bible expects us to be murmurers. The Bible expects us to be unforgiving, unforbearing, easily satisfied with earthly things. That's why there are so many warnings and instructions about all of these things in the Bible because we're inclined to be tempted by those things. What's usually more surprising to us then when somebody falls to temptation is when somebody resists temptation. Now that's sad, but that's true to our experience as fallen, sinful human beings. But now let's think about God. God has been around a lot longer than any of us, hasn't he? The scope of eternity, the lifespan of one human being is like the shake of a dog's tail. It's a moment. It's a puff of smoke in the atmosphere. But God has always been. There has always been the Father with His Son and with His Holy Spirit living together before all worlds, outside and above time, transcendent. That eternal God, who has always been, who dwarfs us, has never been tempted with evil. Not once. Neither can he be tempted. In fact, the Greek word that is used here literally says that God is untemptable. It's a word that reflects on the very being of God. In his very being, because of who and what God is, he is untemptable. And what that should tell us is that God is not the unusual one for hating and resisting evil. We are the unusual ones. We are the unusual ones. 
use our little moment in time to do all kinds of sinful things to gratify our lusts and self-centered pleasures and desires. Living in a fallen world, we can get this feeling that sin and evil are ultimate, as if sin and evil have always been there. That's just the way the world is. There's sin, there's evil, there's corruption. But the truth, beloved, is that sin and evil have only been around about as long as we have. Before we were around, there was only goodness, and life, and beauty, and holiness, and the infinite and eternal being of God. So I say this is a wonder, but it's only a wonder from our point of view. From our point of view, however, this is a wonder. This is the wonder of who God is. Beloved, when we read this passage, we should be saying, look at our God. Behold Him. Look at who He is. Look at what He's like. He's not like us. He's not like the people around us who are flying all over the place to fill their pockets and their bellies. He's different. He cannot be moved. He cannot be moved to desire evil even a little bit. He's totally impervious to the charms of sin. He's strong like a rock. Try using your fishing lure to haul a rock up from the bottom of the lake. And what's going to happen? You're going to lose your lure. Your line's going to snap and break on the rock. That's God. He's like that rock. The lure tries to dig its hook into him, and there's no place for it to go. He's untemptable. He cannot be tempted with evil. That's a wonder, and it's all the more impressive when you look not only at God as he is in his divine being, but now look at God as he became man in Jesus Christ and endured temptations. If there was ever a time when God was in a position to feel the force of those temptations externally conceived that came down upon him, it's when he was standing in the wilderness in human flesh, half-starved, faced with the devil. The devil whom the Bible calls the God of this world, who was offering him power and riches and bread to satisfy his hunger not only, but to make himself a name, to make all of the people in the world around him think of what a great king he might be. And the devil was saying, Jesus, just do it. It would be easy. Just do it. They'll love you. You won't have to suffer all of this pain and all of this trouble. You won't have to fight against the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. If you go my way, there will be no arrest. There will be no beatings. There will be no crown of thorns. There will be no cross. There will be no suffering. There will be no death. You could have it. You could have it all. He was tempted in the sense that an external pressure was applied to him and a desirable course was laid in front of him. He was really tempted. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are. And it's right to say that Jesus felt the temptation. 
He felt it. He understood as he was standing before the devil with his belly empty, facing the road of the cross, he understood this would be an easier way. This would be the path of least resistance, even though it's evil, even though it's contrary to the will of God. He understood it. He felt it. But he wasn't moved by it. When that temptation got to the inner circle of Jesus' soul and tried to work on him, it's like it ran into a steel wall. There was nothing there for the hook to sink into. In Jesus, he could not be drawn away. He could not be enticed, much less could he actually take it in his hands to do something sinful against God. Rather than to be ruled by sin and evil and temptation, he overcame it and he subdued it. And he continued to subdue it. Even as he was being humiliated, even as he was being nailed to the cross and suffering. Now that God, beloved, that God. The God who took on him the form of a servant and lowered himself to the death of the cross. That God. The God who is not ashamed to call you his brothers and sisters. That God. Cannot be tempted by evil. He's untemptable. That's amazing. It makes him stand out. It makes him look like light in a dark place. It makes him look like a green tree bearing fruit in a barren wasteland of death and decay. That's our God. James isn't only intending to teach us about the nature of God for its own sake, although that's a worthy pursuit, but he brings this up and teaches us this about the nature of God because he wants to apply an important corrective to God's people in the church in their battle against sin and temptation and in the Christian life. And the corrective that he brings is necessary. It's necessary because our tendency as sinful human beings is to blame God when we are tempted. Now we would never say it as bluntly as James suggests in verse 13. We would never say when we are tempted, I'm tempted of God. We would never say, that's why I lost my temper and blew up at my wife and children. That's why I drank alcohol until I lost control of my senses and started acting like a fool. That's why I skipped church on Sunday and used the Sabbath for my own pleasure. We would never say, God made me do that. We would never be so blunt. We would never say, God put that lure on his line and he 
cast it out in front of me. I really had no choice. God tempted me. We would never say it like that. This is how we would say it. couldn't help it. My life is just so stressful because I have a stressful job. And I carry all these burdens and I didn't want to. I didn't want to. But when I walked in the door and my wife made that statement right away, I had no choice. It's like there was a pin being pulled out of the hand grenade and my anger just had to go off. I didn't want to. It just happened. Or we would put it like this. Well, I want to go to church on Sunday. I want to use the Lord's day in the right way, but you know, church isn't always such a nice place to be. There are sinful people there. And there are stressful situations that arise in the church. The word of God that is preached there. It's not always so nice. Sometimes it's very direct. Sometimes it's convicting. Sometimes it makes me feel bad about myself. And I'd really much rather just stay home. I want to be a good Christian. But this is just the way it is. It just happens that way. The argument that we tend to use is circumstances. Circumstances made me do it. Because I have too much stress in my life. It's because I'm not well off financially like other people are. It's because I'm too well off financially. And that creates these situations where I'm tempted to do evil. It's because of this circumstance over here. It's because of that circumstance over there. That's why the evil lust took over in my soul. That's why I was enticed. It's not me. I didn't want to do it. It was circumstances. But when we reason that way, what are we really saying? Please don't get hung up on the specific examples that I've used tonight. Don't say, well, I'm not one of those people who skips church. I'm not one of those people who drinks too much. I'm not one of those people who blows up at his wife. You must be talking about somebody else tonight, not me. The purpose of examples in a sermon is to take an abstract concept and make it concrete so that we can relate to it. But the purpose of examples in a sermon is not to be exhaustive. The truth is, we think this way. We all think this way. You think this way. I think this way. And when we think this way, beloved, when we rationalize our actions this way, what are we saying? We're saying it's God's fault. Who arranged the circumstances of your life? Who made you rich? 
Who made you poor? Who saw to it that you would have a stressful job? Who is it that sent the external pressure that acts as a trial of your faith? Who arranged the circumstances of your life? The answer is, God did. And when you blame the circumstances, you are blaming the one who arranged the circumstances. And that person is God. This is exactly what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. And again, if we are not inclined to see ourselves implicated here, go back to Genesis 3 and notice what the very first human beings did after they committed the very first sin. Our father and mother, by the way, our parents. What did Adam say? Adam, did you take of the fruit that I told you not to eat of? Oh, no, it wasn't me. It was the woman. The woman. And not just the woman, but it was the woman you gave me. She took the fruit. She gave it to me, and then I did eat. It wasn't my fault. Now God's gaze turns to the woman. Is this true? No, it was the serpent. It was the serpent, the serpent, that subtle creature, that, that creature that you created. He slithered in here. He deceived me. I, I didn't want to do it. It wasn't my fault. I'm not to blame. It was circumstances. We need to keep this in mind, beloved. Anytime we try to evade responsibility for the fact that we fell to temptation and we sinned. Anytime we point the finger away from ourselves in response to a sin that we know very well we committed, the finger ends up pointing somewhere. And it points at God. Maybe it points at God through the woman. Maybe it points at God through the serpent. Maybe it points at God through this extenuating circumstance in my life, but it ends up pointing at God. God, it's your fault. You tempted me. You're the evildoer, not me. I didn't want to do this. That's our tendency, isn't it? It's awful, but that's our tendency. And James is here to correct us. Verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. The corrective then is to show where temptation actually comes from. Now don't get me wrong this evening. There are circumstances. There is the circumstance of the trying of our faith that God sends. James talked about that earlier. There are the pressures of life. There is stress that we deal with. Stress at work. Stress in our families. Stress at school. There are Christians who deal with the burdens of persecution. The biblical word of, uh, that means persecution is the idea of pressing down upon you. There is suffering. There is disappointment. These are all real 
aspects of life, and they are related to temptation, and they are burdens to bear. There's also the reality of the devil. The devil's not mentioned in so many words in this text, but he's present. He's there in the background. If there is anybody casting his line into the sea of humanity trying to get a bite, it's the devil. He wants you to get hooked. He wants you to get hooked on that bingeable television series on Netflix or on some other streaming service that is oh so entertaining, but also full of sex and violence and blasphemy. He wants you to believe that your own personal satisfaction is the most important thing in your life. The devil is there. The devil is real. And he receives his fair share of the blame when God's people fall into sin. God will judge the devil. For every person that the devil has lured away into sin and temptation, God will judge him. He will crush his head, he says. There are circumstances. This isn't easy. Nevertheless, when the temptation reaches that inner circle, when it starts to work on your desires, so that the thing that you know is evil starts to warm up in your soul and begins to appear to be a good thing. You start to excuse that thing and to rationalize why it would be okay to do that thing. When lust conceives and then brings forth that conscious decision to bite the hook and participate in that sin. And then when sin begets more sin and more sin and more sin so that you go deeper and deeper down into the well of depravity. And then when finally sin demands its wages and the wages of sin you know is death. Who do you have to blame? Who do I have to blame? Not circumstances, not the devil, not the woman, not the serpent, not God. You have yourself to blame, and I have myself to blame. That's what he says. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. Enticed. It's not God. Not God's lust. His own lust. Circumstances are hard. But circumstances do not have the power to inject bitterness, rage, lust, and anger into our hearts. That comes from within. The devil, he's an evil slippery, disgusting, subtle enemy. But the devil does not have the power to set that hook into your lip by himself. You have to bite it. God does try the faith of his people. Sometimes he makes them walk through a very hard and difficult way so that we sing. Thy way was in the sea, O God, through mighty waters deep and broad. It was not God who put the words in the mouths of His people. And they started to murmur and complain about the manna, 
and all the things that God graciously provided them in the wilderness. That came from them. God cannot be tempted with, with evil. God is untemptable. And what's so insidious about all of this is that it ends up being an attack on God Himself. When we blame Him, that's what we're doing. We're not just absolving ourselves of guilt. We're attacking God. When we blame God, we're saying, I don't want you. I don't want you, God. I would be better off if you weren't here, especially with your holy, piercing eyes that are too pure to behold evil. Go away. Go away. I will not accept the blame. Your fault. Your fault. What a mercy when we think that way, that God doesn't give us what we want, or what we say we want. What a mercy that God did not allow Adam to go on hiding behind trees and fig leaves. He went out and he sought him. Then he stood there. Stood there in the middle of them all, the serpent, Adam and Eve, who have all corrupted themselves. And he stood there strong and impervious to temptation, even as Adam and Eve now pointed their guns at him and started to pepper his name with slander immediately when their sin was called attention to. It's your fault, God. It's your fault. It's the woman you gave me. It's the serpent you made. What a temptation that was for God from an external point of view. We can almost imagine God saying this to himself, thinking as a man here, I don't have to listen to this. This puny creature that I made out of the dust hardly a day ago. Now he turns around and he blames me and he curses me to my face. I don't have to listen to this. Why not cast him away? Why not burn the whole thing to the ground? Why not start over? Why not make a new people? A people who will worship me and who will glorify me and who will serve me and not turn against me in this way. Why didn't God do that? Why didn't God even think that way? Because he's not like us. He cannot be tempted with evil. Neither does he tempt any man. He's incorruptible. That leads us to the hope that this text provides for us. The hope, beloved, that you have That your God is incorruptible. I don't mean incorruptible in the sense that Paul means it in 1 Corinthians 15. 
There he's comparing our bodies, which are corruptible, to the bodies that we have in the future, which are incorruptible, as in not able to decay or break down in death. And it's true, God is incorruptible in that sense. But here I mean incorruptible in the sense of moral corrupt corruption. God is incorruptible. And that gives us hope. Just think about this for a minute. Why do people make us nervous? Why do people unsettle us? Why do we not naturally trust politicians? Why do we sometimes become unsettled by friends who suddenly change their attitudes towards us? Well, it's because they are people and we understand instinctively that people are corruptible. People are susceptible to be tempted by evil and are often tempted by evil and give in to those temptations all the time. And we know that's true of the people around us. We know that's true of politicians. We know that's true of our friends because we know that's true of ourselves. But God's not like that. I think one of the reasons the Bible has to keep calling us to believe. Believe. Because we're prone to doubt this. We say to ourselves, how can that be? How can he be incorruptible? How can he not even be able to be tempted? How can he feel the temptation? Feel the force of it? That it would be an easier way. And not even be pulled by it at all. How can he be like that? How can a being like that even exist? We're so conditioned to disappointment. So conditioned to failure and weakness and sin, both in ourselves and the people around us. But God is not like that. He's incorruptible. You cannot put enough pressure on him to make him change his course from good to evil. You cannot come up with an attractive enough prize to lure him away from the cause of truth and mercy. All he ever wants is truth and goodness and mercy. That's all he delights in. He revels in it. This is why this gives us hope. That incorruptible God has put everything on the line for you, beloved. That's not an understatement. You understand that? The incorruptible God who made the heavens and the earth has put everything on the line for you, He gave you His Son. Precious, only begotten Son, whom He loves with an eternal love. He gave Him to you to save you. To save you. Me. Who gave in to temptation. And give in to it all the time. And He swears an oath to us. The Bible says that. He swore an oath. You know what that means? It means he put his own reputation as the incorruptible and untemptable God on the line for us. To put it this way. It would be sin for God to take one of you, his children, who believe in him, And cast you away into hell. It would be sin for God to do that. It would be evil. 
for God to do that. And he won't. He won't do it. The very thought of that is abhorrent to him. And it's abhorrent to it to him not just for your sake, though he loves you, but it's abhorrent to him because he cannot be tempted with evil. He swore an oath. He put the honor of his own good name on the line and he will not violate his word. That gives us hope. That gives us incredible hope. Hope that you cannot find in anything else or anywhere else in the world. You're not going to find that hope in politicians. You're not going to find that hope in any human being. You'll find it in God. He's incorruptible. Believe that, beloved. If you can't believe that, if you insist... Insist on blaming God for your sins instead of living in repentance. I can assure you that God will do what is right and just in your case as well. He will execute his justice on the ungodly. He will not be tempted to overlook sin. Sin which calls into question his goodness and his glory. Not walk in the way of unbelief. Walk in the way of faith. This, beloved, is what faith says. I am to blame. I am to blame for my sin. But my life is in the hands of an incorruptible God. And that incorruptible God has promised me life. And He has sealed His promise in the blood of His own Son, Jesus Christ. Believe that, beloved. Believe that. And have hope. Your God is not and cannot be tempted with evil. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for revealing thyself to us. Even though the truth hurts. Because it exposes us for what we are. So often shifting the blame. So often trying to escape the piercing gaze of truth and righteousness to hide in the darkness. It hurts, nevertheless, though the truth hurts, along with the truth is the beauty and the glory of who thou art as the incorruptible God, the God who cannot be tempted by evil. We, we take hope in that, O oh Father. For we know that in thy righteousness and in thy truth and in thy faithfulness, wherein thou hast sworn an oath and put thine own name and reputation on the line for us, that thou wilt deliver us, that thou wilt show mercy to us and deliver us even from our own folly and our own unbelief and our own failures to live up to who and what we are as thy people. Help us, O Father, to see us for what we are to see our sin, to hate it, to abhor it, never to blame thee for it, but to repent of it, and to turn unto thee in faith. Bless us, O Father, and send us away from thy house with the blessing and the hope of thy goodness with us. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.